Well, about 20 years ago, Don and I went to a marriage enrichment conference in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It was put on by Dennis Rainey's Family Life Ministry. I don't know if they're still doing that, but 20 years ago they were, and it was a, it was a large marriage enrichment conference that we went to. And the first speaker, I don't remember much about the day, I don't remember much about the particular speakers, but the first speaker of the day was an NFL player turned pastor named Ken Hutcherson. Anybody ever heard of Ken Hutcherson by chance? Okay, a couple people. So a former NFL player turned pastor, and during his talk, he addressed the husbands, and he said, husbands, I want you to know that your wife is like a little Holy Spirit. So when she speaks, you need to pay attention. It's the only thing I really remember about his talk, that your wife is like a little Holy Spirit, and when she speaks, you need to pay attention. And I've found over the years that that is true. At least it's true for me. I found it to be true. Dawn is certainly a source of wisdom for me, and she's also kind of like a second conscience, because apparently I need more than my own. (laughs) So that helps. And earlier this week, she asked, we were driving to Lexington, she asked if I had figured out what I was going to preach on on Friday. And I said, no, I haven't, I haven't really landed on that yet. And she said, well, if I could make a suggestion, I think you should preach on something from Colossians. And, you know, we hadn't been in Colossians. I hadn't read Colossians in a while. And so I wasn't quite sure about that. And I didn't want to commit to it, so I was, I was noncommittal. But by the end of the day... I had settled on a passage in Colossians. And the more that I worked on it over the next couple of days, the more that I've come to think that this really is from the Lord and it's for our body tonight. So so husbands, if you don't get anything out of this teaching on Colossians tonight, just remember that your wife is like a little Holy Spirit and you'd probably do well to listen. So the passage is Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. If you want to turn there, Colossians 3. 12 to 17. This is Paul writing, and he says, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the way in which your spirit inspires us in reading your word and in studying your word and in preaching your word. I pray that tonight that Whatever kind of week we've had, a week and a day, whatever it's been like, that we would be able to settle in and focus and hear the word that you give to us tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Every year, different publications come out with best places to live lists. I'm sure you've seen you know, 25 best places to live in the country, in Kentucky, and so on. And in May, the U.S. News and World Report's 25 best places to live in the U.S. list came out. Anybody know what number one was? Green Bay, Wisconsin. Green Bay, Wisconsin was the number one place to live in the U.S. It's affordable. It offers a high quality of life and short commutes. And I guess if you love the Packers, it's also a great place to live. I grew up an hour and a half from Chicago as a Bears fan. I don't think I'd want to live in Green Bay. <laughs> there were several different lists for Kentucky, best places to live in Kentucky. Anybody want to guess what the top vote getter was for Kentucky? You're probably not going to guess it. Fort Thomas, Kentucky, which is southeast of Cincinnati. It's near the Ohio River. It boasts an excellent school system, safe parks, a scenic stretch of river, and a community atmosphere. What makes for a great place to live? In these lists, usually you see things like affordability, quality of life, traffic, things to do, school systems, safety, climate, and so on. But as I read through this passage in Colossians 3, these last couple of days, I kept coming back to the thought, this text sounds like a great place to live. This text really sounds like a great place to live. And I've been spending the past week out with CTS out at the camp, and uh, Ben Hughes taught on the church this week for a couple of days. And so life in the church has really been on my mind these past couple of days. And I love living in central Kentucky. I really do. Um, in 10 minutes, I can be driving by horse farms. It's beautiful. And I'm just amazed that, that I live here. And, and sometimes I will say out loud, God, I can't, I can't believe that I live in central Kentucky. Um, it's really a blessing. Um, like a year after we lived here, I was saying, I can't believe we live in Kentucky. <laughs> but now it's with gratitude, real heartfelt gratitude. But I would rather live in a crummy, dirty, non-scenic, depressed area with the people of God and fleshing these verses in Colossians 3 than live in Green Bay or Fort Thomas or anywhere in the world without the church. Because life in the church, when we're living it as God intended, is a great place to live. It really is a great place to live. So let's look at Colossians 3, 12 to 17. Let's go line by line and see what this amazing place feels and looks like. So I'm going to take the first half here. It's kind of split into two halves. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So Paul says, put on these things. And in the previous section, Paul had exhorted the Colossians to put off the old self with all of its evil habits. Things like anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk. These were their habits. This was their way of life before they put Jesus in charge of their lives. And anger and wrath and malice and obscene talk and slander don't belong in the new life with Jesus. And so they have to be stripped off and thrown away. Every mother who has had a kid in Mars Hill Camp knows that by the end of Mars Hill Camp, 
There are some articles of clothing that cannot be saved. (laughs) And the only thing that you can do with them, because they have been sweated in and left in the rain and mud cake, all you can do is consign them to the trash. And the Colossians are to put off these harmful, destructive practices just like they would peel off these stinking, stained, and reeking clothes never to be worn again. And they're to put on the new self, which Paul said in verse 10, is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, which is another way of saying that we are being conformed to the image of Christ. We're being conformed to the image of Christ. Jesus is the mold into which we are being pressed. He's the visible image of the invisible God, as Paul said earlier, and we're all being pressed into that Christ mold. Now, you might think that if if everybody was pressed into this particular mold, wouldn't you just end up with a bunch of the same thing? I mean, if you have any regular mold and you just put clay after clay after clay in it, it's all going to produce the same thing. Aren't we all just going to be clones one of another if we're pressed into the Christ mold? Well, we're not. When we're pressed into the the Christ mold, we're not made into clones. Instead, what's happening is that as I'm being conformed to the image of Christ, what's being produced is Christ in Kelly, Christ in me, Christ in Sam, Christ in Julia, Christ in Bridget, Christ in Robert. I can only see past these two rows, so I'm just kind of going with these here. God doesn't stamp out our individuality by conforming us to the image of Christ. In Christ, we become more and more who he designed us to uniquely be in Christ. Does that make sense? We're not just the same. We are unique, and God preserves our uniqueness as we find ourselves in Christ. And therefore, Paul says, put on new clothes. We no longer wear the uniform of sin, which looks the same no matter who wears it. There's not much variety in anger and obscene talk and slander and malice. Instead, we put on the new clothes of compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. So before I get into these five characteristics, I do need to back up to one thing. Because Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones holy and beloved. And we don't want to just blip by that. He's not just saying nice things about the Colossians before he gets into the really meaty stuff. He says, chosen ones, holy and beloved. And this is what's true of Jesus himself. These same things are true of Jesus. Jesus was God's chosen one, sent into the world to rescue human beings from slavery to sin. So think of passages like, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus was set apart, which is what it means to be holy. And Jesus himself said that he only did what the father told him to do. And what's true of Jesus is true of us. The father chose his beloved son and set him apart. And he does the same thing with us. He's chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world, as it says in Ephesians. We are a holy priesthood, as it says in 1 Peter, and we are certainly beloved by our Father. Amen? So the first one of these five is compassionate hearts. And the heart is the seat of our emotions and our affections. And if I have a compassionate heart, 
I'm looking outward. I'm looking to needs that are outside myself. I'm looking at other people and detecting what the needs are. I'm not devoting my emotions and my affections to what's going on in me and the things that I want to get for myself. Instead, I'm attuned to the needs of others, and I do what I can, when I can, to meet them. This is the Christ mold into which we are being pressed. Remember these passages from the Gospel of Matthew. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Then Jesus called his disciples and said, I have compassion on this crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Can we do everything that needs to be done in every situation? No. But if we aren't cooperating with God so that he can put, put on compassionate hearts, put compassionate hearts in us, if we're not cooperating with him, we won't look outward and we won't detect those needs even when they're right in front of us. Does that make sense? So that's the first one. The second one is kindness. And kindness can also be translated as generosity or goodness. And it's one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. And kindness is a Christ-like attitude toward other people. It's a Christ-like attitude toward other people, and it can't be faked or manufactured. I'm sure you've all been able to tell the difference between when someone is genuinely being kind to you and when somebody is just putting on a mask of politeness. They're not the same. Because when you're kind, you're giving from yourself. You're giving something that maybe other people wouldn't give. And you're giving that from the depth of who you are. And when you cooperate with the Father so that you put on the clothing of kindness, you become the kind of person who is generous and kind, whether the cameras are rolling, whether anybody sees or not. You're able to produce kindness out of your heart because you're cooperating with God in that being forged in you. The next one is humility. So if kindness is Christ-like attitude toward other people, then humility is a Christ-like attitude toward ourselves. It's a Christ-like attitude toward myself. And just as Christ did not consider equality with God something to be grasped after and wrestled away for himself, when we put on humility, we let go of the everlasting burden of having to get our own way. And that is a burden when we always have to have our own way. Dallas Willard refers to this as becoming the kind of person who is neither bothered nor surprised when we don't get what we want, and it simply does not matter, and it's nothing to become worked, out, worked up about. That's humility. That's Christ-like attitude about ourselves. The fourth one is meekness. Meekness. As you might remember from our study of James uh, this past winter, meekness is controlled strength. It's controlling your strength. A gentleness is another way that you might put it. When I used to wrestle with my kids, my main objective was to make sure that they didn't get hurt. Okay? They could go at me all they wanted, but I had to make sure that they didn't hurt themselves and that I didn't inadvertently hurt them. And then over the years, that became difficult wrestling with three boys at once, and then especially as they got older. And so then I was trying to protect them, but I was also very much trying to protect myself. When we put on meekness, 
we don't go for the kill. We don't go for the clinching argument. We don't go for the witty barb that just devastates the opponent. We don't go for those things. We don't press our advantage when we have one. We control our strength. Once uh, Tim Keller was debating a secular humanist, and in the course of the debate, the secular humanist began struggling to make the point that he was trying to make, and he couldn't find the right words, and he was, he was just really stammering and not getting anywhere. And Keller could have chosen to go for the kill and just make the guy look foolish. And instead, Keller said, is this what you mean? Is this what you're trying to say? And he laid out the secular humanist point better than the guy could have made it himself. And the guy said, yeah, that's, that's what I was wanting to say. That's what I was trying to say. And Keller said, okay, good. And he came back into the debate, now having to refute a much more difficult point that he himself had made for the guy. That's meekness. That's not pressing an advantage all the way. How many of us would have confidence enough in God that we would not press an advantage over someone who opposes us? And finally, there's patience. So meekness has to do with our approach toward people or to people. Gentleness as opposed to coming on strong. But patience has to do with our reaction to other people. The way that other people impact us and our reaction toward them. So putting on patience means that we don't respond with resentment or anger when people make life difficult for us. And patience is essential if we're going to do what Paul says next, which is this. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Bearing with one another means that we restrain our natural reaction to things that people do that tend to irritate us. The, the odd or just the quirky things that people do. We don't blow up at them. We don't point out every single thing that they do that is just quirky or odd or difficult. We all have quirks. I know that I do things that are annoying to my wife and children. I just know this about me. I know it to be true. I don't try to be annoying, but I know there are aspects of my life, my personality, my mannerisms that, that just are. And it requires them to bear with me, to not always point every single thing out. And I have to have patience to not point everything out about other people, but to bear with those things. I've known people whose laugh would just make me wince. It's like fingernails on the chalkboard, you know, but what are you going to say? You can't be brother and sister with me in the church unless you fix your laugh, you know, and, or unless you get that thing ironed out and laugh a different way, then we just, we can't be brother and sister in the church. I have no right to say that. I have to bear with them as they bear with me in my own shortcomings. In one of P.G. Woodhouse's books, the main character says, my aim is to spread sweetness and light wherever I go. People often complain about it. And sometimes we do have to make complaints to one another. Sometimes there are real offenses that we commit against one another, and they have to be named, they have to be brought out. Otherwise, they go underground and they fester and they become resentment and real anger. But when I bring a complaint to you about something that you've done, I'm also reminded that the Lord has forgiven me for far worse than I've done. I have to remember that I owed 10,000 talents 
And the father forgave me. So of course I'm going to forgive you the 100 denarii that you owe me. And I'm not going to press that and make you pay it. If you're not ready to forgive an offender, you'd better be careful and better be hesitant about bringing that offense to somebody if you're not ready to forgive them. You better go back to the beginning of knowing God and get that squared away about your own depravity and God's forgiveness toward you. Then you'll come more ready and more eager to give forgiveness than to name the offense. Does that make sense? Is that good? Next, Paul says, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So if we think about putting those five characteristics on like articles of clothing, love is the piece, kind of like the belt, that wraps them all together and secures them all so that they all stay on. Love seeks the good of the other. And without love, all those individual articles would just fall off. We can't really practice meekness and kindness and humility without love. Love is the supreme aim, and it's expressed through those other characteristics. Now, I think this sounds like a great place to live. Does this sound like a great place to live? Do you want to live there? I want to live there. You want to live there too? Paul goes on. This is kind of the second half of that passage. He says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now in the Bible, peace can mean kind of a settled frame of mind about God's sovereignty over any situation. But I don't think that's what Paul means when he talks about peace here. Rather, the peace of Christ is the peace that Christ has made possible through his death, interrelational peace that Christ has made possible through his death. And one passage that we looked at in CTS this week is Ephesians 2, 13 to 18. And Paul's talking to Gentiles here, who are people who were never part of the family of God before Jesus came. The Gentiles were always on the outside. But Paul writes this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. God has always intended to bring Jew and Gentile together in one family, And he did it through his son's death. That's the foundation for peace in the family of God. That's the foundation for peace that we can have with one another. Now, does that mean that we should never, ever have conflict in the body? No, it doesn't mean that. In order to have unity, sometimes we have to actually raise differences that we have. We have to bring those to the fore. We can only honestly discuss differences Because unity isn't our creation. We don't make it. We're not responsible for creating unity. The unity has already been given 
in the flesh of Jesus that he gave for us that broke down the dividing wall of hostility. That's the foundation of peace. And so we don't maintain unity by just never having conflict and not having hard conversations. But we, we maintain unity by relating to one another honestly as members of God's family and taking seriously that Jesus in his flesh broke down that dividing wall of hostility. Does that make sense? The church should be the safest place on earth to resolve conflict because we already have a foundation of peace. It's already been given to us. And for that, we can be thankful, as Paul says in verse 15. I want to live in that place. You want to live in that place? Paul goes on. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, the word of Christ can mean Christ's actual words, the words that we have recorded in the Gospels. It can also mean the word that Christ is, the word of the Father now in flesh appearing, as it uh, says in O Come All Ye Faithful. The word of the Father through whom we are saved. It can mean that too. And I think there's no reason to say that it means one thing and not the other. I think Paul has both in mind, and both are true. Let Christ's words dwell in you richly, and let his whole life dwell in you as well. Be at home in the gospel story, in other words. When we're at home in the gospel story, we can teach one another, which means instructing and encouraging and building up. And we can also admonish one another, which means confronting and correcting when it's needed. We need both as we progress in the life of Jesus, as we progress in his school of life as his disciples. When we're really at home in the gospel story, too, our life, our life together will overflow into song. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And I don't think there's any need to break these down and distinguish one from the other. The main point is that our life together is a culture of grateful worship. Our life together is a culture of grateful worship, of which teaching and admonishment is just one part. We have to teach, we have to admonish one another, but it's all set against the backdrop of grateful worship to God. Remember that in Revelation, in 2 and 3, Jesus delivers seven messages to seven churches, and he teaches and he admonishes in those seven letters. But after that, John is transported to the highest heaven, where he witnesses angels perpetually worshiping the one seated on the throne and the Lamb. That's the ongoing backdrop out of which Jesus' teaching and admonishment comes to the seven churches. So we do teach and admonish one another, but we do so with hearts of grateful worship. Is that good? And then Paul closes this section in verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We've talked about this verse in a couple of recent men's meetings Mainly how it's such a comprehensive verse. Whatever you do, well, that includes a lot, right? Whatever you do includes a whole lot. In word or deed, that doesn't seem to leave very much out. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. There isn't any pocket of life that doesn't fall within those words. So whatever we do in the church, out in the world, wherever, we do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. We do it in a manner consistent with his character 
how he himself would do it if he was in our place. And you might think, can I really do everything in my life the way that Jesus would do it in my place? Well, that's why we're students in his school of life. That's why we learn from him how to live so we can do things the way that he would do it in our place. We learn from him and we're being conformed to his image. We're putting on the new self with compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. We're not just becoming more, better, improved versions of ourselves, but a new creation. Christ in Kelly, Christ in Patrick, Christ in Steve, Christ in Bob, Christ in Michelle, Christ in you, the hope of glory, as Paul says in Colossians 1.27. It's a comprehensive vision of a comprehensive new life that we get to put on. Isn't that great? Isn't that a great place to live? Don't you want to live there? I want to live there. Well, how do we live there? It's up to us. It's up to us to cooperate with God's work in our lives so that we can increasingly become people with compassionate hearts and with humility and kindness and meekness and patience. It's up to us to let go of the burden of having to have our own way in everything. It's up to us to trust the unity that Jesus provided through his own body and have honest discussions and resolve conflict. It's up to us to teach and to admonish one another out of a culture of song and grateful worship. And it's up to us to let the Spirit bind us together in love so that we can be a dwelling place for God. As Paul says in Ephesians, the Spirit is making us a dwelling place for God. And above all, we want the Father to dwell with TCF and hear him say, this is a good place to live. This is a good place to live. Amen? Amen.